Welcome to Contributor Wednesday on Bridge the Gap Network. In this series, you'll hear from thought leaders on a variety of topics dedicated to inform, educate, and influence the senior living industry. Welcome to Bridge the Gap Contributor Wednesday. I'm Kara Saletto, President and Chief Retention Officer at Magnet Culture, a company exclusively focused on reducing unnecessary employee turnover for organizations across the country. Today, my friends, there are more open positions than there are applicants, and we cannot let go of anybody in our pipeline. It is unbelievable the stories that I'm hearing from you and your friends and your peers uh, on the front line about how short-staffed we are, how difficult this staffing crisis really is today. And I just want to start by saying my heart goes out to you all. Thank you so much for all the hard work and extra hours and extra shifts and extra responsibilities that you are taking on right now as we work through one of the most difficult times uh, in our careers. So while I wish I could really help tremendously on the how do we get more people to apply side of things, you know that my specialty is on retention. And so I'm not going to try to be something that I'm not. I'm not a recruiter. um, And I, I merely only dabble in that space of trying to attract people to our organizations because the work that I do and the message that I really instill in leaders is we have to first look in the mirror and know that we are a great place to work before we can ever turn things around and point it on other people and say, we just need to hire better people. Um, I am constantly encouraging leaders to look in that mirror and to figure out how can we be more attractive? How can we get more employee referrals? Because we're a great place to work and people want to come back tomorrow. So in that light, I wanted to focus today's conversation on a place that we can make a difference. I know you're slammed. I know you don't have time to stop what you're doing and go revamp your operations, but I'm going to share some strategies today that are very specific to the onboarding and orientation process so we can keep the new hires that we can't afford to lose. So when we do get these folks coming in our doors that have applied and that have been accepted into our family and have been offered these jobs, that we don't have to watch them walk away after two months or two weeks, two days, or two hours. Okay. So that's what we're going to focus on today. We have got to maximize our onboarding process and spend a little bit of time getting that right and doing that better in order to extend the tenure of those new hires. All right. Now, let me share with you kind of an overarching theme that I hear is about this sink or swim model. Well, you know, we're just short-staffed, we're busy, we don't have time to go through things in detail, we don't have time to handhold. And so, you know, it's worked for us in the past. We just threw them in and the good ones rose to the top and could float and manage their way. And the others that would sink, they would quit because they couldn't cut it, right? Well, 
We have to look at the generational dynamics there for a moment, because if you look all the way back to, you know, even the 70s, 80s, 90s, we had this previous generation of Generation X, for example, that was born anywhere between uh, 1965 and 1980, give or take, depending on what research you're looking at, but that's the general area. So this group of workers, uh, many of them were at one time latchkey kids. Okay. You remember that, what that was, right? We send the kiddo to school with a key around their neck or maybe latched to their backpack because that kiddo was going to come home at three o'clock alone to an empty house because that was when a lot of the moms started working once their children went to school. And so these kiddos, even, I mean, I'm just blown away today to think about this, but kids that were eight, 10, 12 years old, coming home by themselves, don't burn down the house, do the chores that are on the list on the table and um, don't let strangers in, (laughs) right? That kind of thing. And so that experience for those young Gen Xers who came home and had to fend for themselves and problem solve their way out of anything that they needed, those folks became these independent workers in our workforce years and years ago who could figure it out. They were able to sink or swim pretty well with under that strategy, and they were able to figure things out on their own and work independently. Well, then If I could share what happened with you, the 1980s changed everything. Right when the millennials were being born, like me, if you didn't know, I was born in 1981. And so my sister's a Gen Xer born in the 70s. I'm a millennial born in the 80s. And things really flipped even just between our six-year time frame, our six-year age difference. Because in the 1980s, that was when we had our first 24-hour news network. And we started hearing about crazy things like these child abductions and a six-year-old girl that was taken from her own front yard, right? Once we had this 24-hour news cycle on cable television, and then we had shows like True Crime and America's Most Wanted and these types of shows that started to tell us these fairly rare stories, um, but they found several of them to, to really scare the parents into, ah, stranger danger. And we can't let our kids play outside without adults around and uh, we can't let them walk home from school and they certainly can't be at the house by themselves at eight, nine, 10 years old. No way. So I just want to tell you as a leader today that we need to acknowledge that different experience that our younger workforce had versus our older workforce, where the older workforce was encouraged to be independent and to figure things out at a very young age. The millennial and Gen Z workforce that we have now, and remember, I'm a part of that, (laughs) I was really handheld through my childhood, and my mom wouldn't let me use the stove. So I even got to college and had to learn how to use a stove because she was afraid in high school I would burn the house down. (laughs) Okay, so I was a a tad absent minded at times, but I just mean she would cook that food for me or made me use the microwave that was safer and and different things like that. So when I came into the work world, it took me into my 20s before I was able to figure it out, to have that critical thinking and to be able to solve my own problems. I tended, even in my 20s, to just lean on others and go, how do I do that? You haven't shown me how to do that. How am I supposed to know how to do that? It wasn't in the handbook. 
<laughs> you know, or it wasn't in the in the playbook, um, that type of thing. And so that is a mentality shift that it is a real struggle for managers today because for years and years, if not decades, we had new hires and employees in general who would just figure it out. Hey, go do this and don't bother me unless you have to. And then we have here in the last 15 years or so, in particular, we have much more of this workforce that expects detailed instructions, a playbook, They want the manual, the documentation of step one, step two, step three. And a lot of people look at that and say, oh, they're lazy or I have to handhold them. They need all this coddling, (laughs) you know, and things like that. But it really was a generation or two that have been raised in a different time. And we had a different life experience as children, which shaped our brain and our skills and abilities in a different way. Okay, so I bring that up because today, if we do not have our onboarding and orientation really solidified, if we don't have a plan and checklists and some procedures and documentation and handbooks, if we don't have those resources for the new hires, you're going to get pushback of them saying, well, you set me up to fail because you just threw me out there and I didn't know what I was doing. And then I made a mistake and I got in trouble and you didn't tell me that I couldn't do that. Right. And in reality, we can't get mad at people for doing stuff that we didn't tell them they couldn't do. (laughs) And yet we still do get mad at those people for doing things that we didn't tell them they couldn't do. And then they did them. uh, And we're frustrated because why? Because they couldn't read our minds. It's so frustrating, right? I just need them to read my mind. Don't they know how business is done? No, no, they don't. They do not know how business has been done in the past. And remember too, with today's new workforce, some of them have never seen their parents get up, go to work on time in a pressed, you know, professional looking outfit and things like that. So some of our new hires that are coming in, if you remember my previous episodes, um, we need to understand that, that the new hires today were not raised like many of us, and they may be coming either from a different generation or different socioeconomic background, or that they just didn't have the role models and parents that looked like our parents, you know, and that taught us what professionalism looks like, for example. So I hope that's helpful for you in understanding how the evolution of the workforce kind of shifted over time in regards to the onboarding process and why in the past it was okay to cut, cut, cut on our operational processes and training and the handbooks. Ah, it's okay. That's out of date. Just don't worry about it. And now I am going to make the case to you today that we really need to work on communicating those expectations more clearly and making our resources and our onboarding process even much more effective. It is then going to extend the tenure of those new hires, because remember, who's the flight risk? Who's the flight risk? New hires. Every new hire, I don't care how old they are, every new hire is a flight risk because if they left their last job to come here, they are willing to leave you to go on to the next shiny opportunity. So 
We know the new hires are a tremendous flight risk today, and we need to slow that revolving door. All right. So first things first, I'm going to give you kind of a smorgasbord of some simple and quick retention strategies related to onboarding and orientation. Some take a little bit more work than others. Some are immediately actionable and others it might take a, a task force to get this job done or, or some time once we get our head back above water. I understand that. Okay. But some of these things you can also just start doing. It doesn't have to be perfect. And one of those things is start making onboarding checklists. So often I'm talking to DONs and administrators and other department heads or even owners. And when I ask about, tell me about the onboarding process. What does day one, week one, month one, and quarter one look like? And I get stares. <laughs> I get blank stares, right? Deer in the headlights. I'm sorry. Well, okay, hold on, Kara. We do, uh, we have, what is it now? It's been cut back to like a day and a half. <laughs> of onboarding. And it's really just the compliance check, 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 because we're super short staffed. And so we've got to get them out on the floor. Well, then they tell me that that person left a week later and come to find out it was because they didn't feel connected to the team or the mission or felt like they were thrown to the wolves. Uh, they felt like they were left out there to sink or swim all by themselves and were kind of set up to fail in that situation. So one easy thing we can do is start making those checklists, okay? And you can make it, start making the draft the next time you do some onboarding for somebody, or you can even have a new hire start making the checklist for you as they go through the process. But if you go ahead and just jot down, start sketching out what do they need to know or be exposed to or see or who do they need to meet, right? Those kind of things on day one, start there. And most of us have that kind of in place because of course it's going to be tremendously compliance heavy on paperwork and videos and whatnot. But then what do we want them to know and see and do week one? Past just the day one, right? Not just the HR compliance or the home office and corporate requirements, but what does that first week look like when we hand them off to their supervisor? We hand them off to their team. How are they being integrated into that team, welcomed onto that team, and really um, somebody taking them under their wing in order to get them acclimated into the organization? Okay, so we've got day one checklist. We've got a week one checklist of what we want them to see and do and experience and expose, you know, expose them to and um, even people to meet again. In, right. Then we go to month one. So by the end of month one, we want them to check even more boxes, right? Build up those competencies and what they know, be more comfortable with the building and the team and things like that. And then hopefully you can extend it all the way out eventually to a quarter one. So by the end of the quarter, we know they are truly acclimated into the team. They feel comfortable with folks. They know a lot more people. They know the procedures. They know where resources are. Um, they know the systems, right? All of those things that we want to make sure they have, in fact, become competent at those things and that they are given the tools to be successful through that process. All right. In fact, one of the things that I'm often talking about in my workshops and retreats is the fact that managers 
need to own the onboarding process for their team members. Onboarding is not HR's job, and many of our communities don't even have a full HR person anyway. The department heads are the hiring managers, and that's the best we've got, right? So even if you do have HR folks, they are typically handling the recruiting and the initial onboarding. But once they pass those first few days and check all the compliance boxes, that's when we need managers and supervisors to be the onboarding champions and make sure that they realize it takes months before new hires truly are oriented into this community and have started to grow their roots in the organization, which will help keep them longer. Okay. So first things first, make sure to start with some checklists. You can also, um, once you sketch out some general checklists, you may want to make some separate checklists or little sub checklists, as I would call them. For example, if you have a CNA who is a brand new CNA, she might have more check boxes and things that you need to cover with her than somebody who has been a CNA at a different community and has just switched to your location uh, or your company as a new CNA with you, but she's not new in the CNA world. That is going to be a different onboarding experience for those two folks. Or even if you have a CNA who, for example, came from a different healthcare setting altogether, like a hospital. I was just working with a group the other day of administrators and DONs, and I asked them that question of, if you have someone who worked in a hospital environment who comes into senior care and senior living, do you have to onboard them differently? And they immediately said, oh, absolutely, because there's a lot of things that are different. <laughs> you know, there's a lot of things that are the same, but there are a lot of things that are different between the hospital environment and our environment. And so we're going to have to hit that head on and make sure that they know some of those differences and don't make assumptions about the way that we operate. Okay, so start with general checklists and then over time you can create some sub checklists or more role specific and experience specific checklists. All right. Eventually, you'll want to get to kind of an orientation playbook, as some of my clients call it, and you may want to incorporate some games and FAQs or questions you want to ask the new hires, kind of testing them and quizzing them and putting in photos of people um, that they need to meet, not just the names. Because, you know, when, when we tour people around our buildings and we introduce them to folks, you know, they are on information overload. So they cannot be expected to remember people's names and faces, especially when we're behind masks. <laughs> that makes it even harder when I'm just working with eyes and hair. Okay. So we really want to make sure again, that we're showing them who people are, you know, if you can make a little handbook about that or post that in break rooms or other places like that. And then we want to make sure that um, that we reintroduce them to people on occasion. Okay. So that is important that we do not ever think that one tour or one introduction is going to be enough for folks, especially introducing them to senior leaders, making sure that senior leaders also are involved in that onboarding and orientation process. If not on day one, at least within that first week or first month that they get to meet in person, hopefully face-to-face, -face, these senior leaders uh, and get to introduce themselves to those folks as well. 
Now, in the onboarding process, as mentioned, we have just cut, cut, cut back to compliance only because guess what? I need her on the floor, right? I absolutely need folks out working these shifts as quick as possible because we are beyond understaffed at this point. And I totally get that. But I am going to be honest in saying the companies I know that have held on to, I don't know how they're doing it, (laughs) but they have somehow held on to the cultural aspect of their onboarding. What I mean is they're telling people in the orientation, this is who we are. This is our mission. These are our core values. This is what our core values look like, not just posters on the wall and some words like integrity and quality, you know, things like that. But here's what integrity really means at our organization. Or here are those unwritten expectations that we have. I'll tell you the companies that I see still incorporating the cultural aspect of who we are and why we do what we do and what is expected of you that's beyond the policies and procedures Those companies are absolutely able to keep their new hires longer because they have set the expectations. They have started to grow their roots in the company um, to to become more deep-rooted and hopefully stay longer. And those folks ultimately feel a stronger connection to that company and to the people, and they are much more likely to make it through a bad day or past a schedule that they don't love. Okay, so we definitely want to start bringing that back as quickly as we can. Another thing I see that's missing quite often now is genuine check-ins. So again, I understand that we're very, very busy, but this is one you can immediately start operating with. And that is anytime you anytime you want to do a drive-by check-in, you know, the, hey, how's your first week going, Shelly? Good to see you. Hey, good. Yeah, yeah. Everything's good? 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 Yeah. Fabulous. All right. Well, hey, holler if you need anything. <laughs> As you're walking down the hall, <laughs> that type of drive-by check-in, um, anytime you are going to do that <laughs> instead I know you're rushing. I know you're going from one thing to the next pretty quickly. But anytime we can, stop. Stop and talk to this person and really make sure that you are coming across to them as approachable and accessible. Because right now, so many of these new hires feel like none of the management, you know, whether it's supervisors, shift leads, department directors, administrators, they feel like no one has time for them. And everyone's just running around like crazy. And so we want to make sure that we are checking in genuinely with these folks on a regular basis. Now, in an earlier episode, I think it was in May, I talked explicitly about stay interviews where you actually schedule time, 10, 15, 30 minutes with folks to talk about their experience working there and why they stay, not about their performance. So you can go back and check out that episode if you want to learn more about that. But you don't even have to go to that level of scheduling it and really having a formal stay interview process right now because we don't have time for that. (laughs) But I do want you to just genuinely check in with folks for two minutes. 
five minutes. It does not have to be long, but it can be very, very powerful. And I would do it a lot sooner and more often than what you probably were used to in the past. So right now, because we're seeing so much 30, 60, 90 day turnover, I would check in absolutely by the end of day three with folks and find out how's it going. Do they have what they need? How can we better support them? All right. So you definitely want to check in midweek, that first week, or within a few shifts of them coming on board. And then try to check in briefly with them weekly through that first month, and then make sure that you put a reminder on your schedule to check in with folks at 30, 60, 90 days and see what's going on. What's frustrating them? What do they love? What do they not love? (laughs) And really just listen to them. Because sometimes you may be able to head off some scheduling challenges or uniform issues that they don't like, or uh, maybe there's they're not clicking with their team or their supervisor, and we can then shift things around to make it a better fit. Okay. So definitely start checking in more often and make sure that that is a genuine check-in. Uh, Once you get somebody hired as well, I encourage you, if you don't already, to make a get to know you sheet, because when we hire people, we're not allowed to ask them, do you have children? Are you married? (laughs) You know, tell me all about your personal life. You can't do that in the interview. But once somebody's on board, then you can ask them to fill out as much as they feel comfortable on this one page, get to know you sheet. And they can tell you all about their priorities, their family, their second or third jobs, their hobbies. Um, They can even tell you where they like to shop or what kind of gift card they would like if they were to be uh, praised or recognized for something that they did really well. And that way, you not only as the manager can look at that and really customize your experience with that person and your communication with them, but also you can share some of that information with the team and let them know this isn't just Shelly. This is Shelly who loves dogs and uh, prefers the beach over mountains, you know, or whatever. You can put some silly questions in there. I always like to ask about your favorite snack, your favorite drink, um, little things like that, your favorite candy or dessert, because then you can get those things for folks uh, on special occasions or just out of the blue as a thank you for folks. And it just costs a couple bucks here and there. Okay. Um, So make sure that we're making this the best new hire experience as we can, and we're getting them acclimated into that team so everyone else knows them as well. And I may have mentioned this in previous months as well, but I cannot talk about onboarding and orientation without addressing that we cannot, cannot let anybody in our buildings eat their young. All right. And come on now, you know what I'm talking about. You're, I can hear you giggling. <laughs> you know who's doing this. You know what's happening out there. Uh, and in the clinical space, we see it running rampant in some locations that this happens quite a bit. So I will tell you, we can never get the staffing stability we need to provide great quality care if we do not stop allowing people to eat their young, to haze others, to talk down to new hires, um, you know, to give them the grunt work or the crap equipment that doesn't really work, you know, or doesn't work as well and things like that. Because remember, 
new hires are the flight risk. So we want to make this as simple and smooth a transition into our company as absolutely possible. And I was just talking to a leadership team yesterday, and we had a very serious conversation about the three ways to address that. The first is try to coach that person who's being negative and understanding how we need these new hires and we cannot afford to push them away and that their behavior is unacceptable, right? So if we can coach them out of that behavior, great. Second of all, if you can't get them coached out of that behavior, second is to separate them from new hires. Don't let them train. Don't let them mentor. Try not to schedule their breaks at the same time, (laughs) okay? Uh, Because we don't want anybody, any negative energy Um, kind of infiltrating the new hires there. So second is separate or second, sorry, is um, separate from the new hires. And then third would be separate from the organization altogether. So we can't let her stay. If we know who's doing this, I don't care. I'm sorry. I don't care if she has been there 22 years and you know her whole family and she shows up for her shifts, but the new hires don't. I understand that argument, but the problem is you're never going to get any new hires to stay if they're being treated the way that she is treating folks. So we have to remember that turnover costs us tens of thousands of dollars as these new hires walk away. And that one person with that negative attitude and creating that toxic department there is costing us tons and tons of money. And more importantly, they're costing us the ability to become a better place to work because they're holding us back from that. So do not let your staff eat their young, please, please, please. All right. So remember that it is not about what's on the wall as far as posters and mission statements. It is about how people walk down the hall in your buildings. That is your true culture. And that is what the new hires are going to see immediately upon entry. They're going to see how people are treating one another, how the staff is treating one another, how the managers are communicating with the staff and how you are taking care of your team. That is so, so important. So hang in there, friends. I know it is beyond difficult right now. I know your situation you're dealing with is impossible and I am sending you strength. All right. Hang in there. Do not give up. We will get through this. We will get through this together. So next month, we're going to talk workforce and leadership again, (laughs) new day, new episode, new topic, but If you need any more strategies, you can always reach out to me um, on LinkedIn or at btgvoice.com if we haven't connected already. And if you need some strategies in your back pocket, don't forget that my book, Staying Power, Why Your Employees Leave and How to Keep Them Longer, is available 24-7 on Amazon, Kindle, and Audible. I'm Kara Saletto, and thanks so much for listening to this week's Bridge the Gap Contributor Wednesday. Talk to you soon. Thanks for listening to Contributor Wednesday series on Bridge the Gap Network. For more information about the contributors and for a full library of episodes, visit btgvoice.com.